people, this is Phil Rosenthal, and I'm on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. Why aren't you listening? This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a producer, author, director, Emmy-nominated television writer who scripted some of the most popular TV shows of the last 40 years, including. Rowan and Martin's Laughing, Ola and the Family, MASH, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda, Sanford and Son, Empty Nest, The Golden Girls. He even had the pleasure and honor of doing two episodes of Till Death with Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> Finally, a sitcom guru who hired you. <laughs> and he's done two and a half men. And everybody hates Chris. He's also the creator of hit programs like Blossom, the John Larroquette Show, My Wife and Kids, and the Netflix series The Ranch, starring Ashton Kutcher, Sam Elliott, and Deborah Winger, which is entering its fourth and final season. In a career that started way back in the 1960s with a personal invitation from Slappy White, he's written for and worked with a who's who of showbiz icons, including Jimmy Durante, Bob Hope, George Burns, Red Fox, Cher, Lily Tomlin, Goldie Hawn, Steve Martin, Jerry Lewis, Buddy Hackett, Alice Cooper, and David Crosby. And yes, he has worked with Milton Berle. And yes, I do have a question to ask him. (laughs) He's also worked with many of our previous guests, including Ted Watts, Ileana Douglas, Art Matrano, Norman Lear, Alan Alda, and John Amos. Hell, the guy's even worked with Sid Melton. He's also the co-author of a terrific book about his late great friend Clarence Clemens called Big Man, filled with entertaining stories about their lifelong friendship and life on the road with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Please welcome an artist of many talents and interests, and a man who claims that Jackie Gleason once made him sit and watch him work from a couch in the men's room. The very funny Don Rio. Wow, that's quite an introduction. You know, Big Man could have been the title of my Milton Berle story, too. So. <laughs> that, oh, there you go. Well, I, that leads us right to it, Don. <laughs> well, we might as well start off, off there. You know, it was my first job uh, on television. It was a show called Jimmy Durante Presents the Lennon Sisters Hour, and there were three of us writing it. Me, 
guy named Bill Box who had invented the box card, the uh, the amusing greeting card. He, he was uh, the other writer, and a guy named Hugh Wedlock Jr., who had added the junior to his name so everyone would think he was his own son. <laughs> Love it. Hugh had worked for uh, Jack Benny for years and years, and uh, and he was the the old pro on on this show. And Durani had called in all his markers, and all his uh, all his old friends were going to be on the show. We got to go to Jack Benny's house. It was all kinds of interesting things that happened. But on the first day in the writers' room, we we're in this little bungalow. Hugh, Huey says to me, you know, if Milton likes you, he'll show you his cock. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know? I, I had, I had never heard any stories about Milton Berle. I, I you know, I was a, a show business, almost a show business virgin. So uh, I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he won't just take it out. He'll find a way to. to uh, to show it to you. Well, the Milton week comes along. Every star was there for a week, and Milton's there. We do a table read. We do a rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. And we're finally getting to the dress rehearsal on Thursday, and Huey and Bill and I were sitting in the audience, and somebody comes out and says, Milton wants to see you guys in the dressing room. <laughs> he wants to, talk about, wants to talk about the gladiator sketch, which uh, he was about to rehearse. Gladiator and, sketch. Uh, while we're in there, Milton's dressed. He's got a suit and a tie on, and there's there's a there's a wardrobe guy there with him, a guy named Bill Ballou, who also designed Elvis's costumes. Ah. He, was a, he was really a, a brilliant guy. Anyway, he was there to put Milton in this uh, gladiator outfit, and during the 20 minutes that we were there, Milton gets completely undressed, smoking a big cigar, <laughs> and he's standing there naked, talking about the punchline to the to the to the. To the uh, the sketch. It was, uh, you know, it was a little disconcerting. So, so describe his cock to our listeners. Okay, yeah, sure. Have you ever seen a fungo bat? Very similar to a to a, a, a combination of a fungo bat and a cyclops baby. Gilbert, you know what a fungo bat is? No, but it's just such a great word. It's a bat used to hit batting practice. It's oh. a, large, a, large, a large baseball so bat. So it was everything you, you imagined it would be. Uh, and more. Yeah. <laughs> That's an. Ex- it, I was going to say it's an exclusive club, Don, but it may not be an exclusive club. No, Al- no. Alan's White Bell I- has seen it. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I think a lot of people, uh, I, I think he waved it around quite a bit. <laughs> Well, I know I, I would. I have I nothing else would. to ask you. Okay, well, that's good. It was a pleasure talking to you. Now, another thing. We've had this guy on our show, and that was the terrific Marty Allen. Yes. Now, yeah. Marty Allen used to be in the team of Allen and Rossi. Who right. were, uh, I, I mean, I loved watching them growing up. They were like the poor man's Martin and Lewis. Yeah, hello there. Yeah. yeah. Hello there. And now you you told me you have a connection there. Well, it's it's a it's a loose connection. You know, uh, um, I, I was working at my father's furniture store in North Kingstown, Rhode Island, when I was a kid, and I was writing jokes for comics that came through town. And I saw Slappy White on the Tonight Show on a Wednesday night with uh, Johnny Carson, and Slappy was doing a a, a 
a bit called the first black vice president, which was set up punchline. Where do you stand on unemployment? At the head of the line. You know, there was. A, I understand you were uh, you were uh, you got a scholarship to the University of Mississippi athletically. He said, "Yes, I was a javelin catcher." <laughs> so it was it was set up punchline, set up punchline. So I wrote a. He, he's coming to Rhode Island that Saturday night. I see in the paper the next day. I write some jokes. I go there, go in the dressing room between shows, and I show him the jokes. And he says, "Can you read?" And I said, oh, shit, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I can read. He said, the reason I ask, he says, I'm using uh, maitre d's and busboys to do the, the setups, the, the straight lines, and, and they can't read, and they fuck it up. So, you know, I'll give you $350 a week, and I'll pay your expenses, and you can be in the act with me if you can write jokes like this every day. And I said, sure. And he said, okay, we open at the Apollo Theater next Friday night with Jackie Wilson and Big Maybell. And I said, great. And he gave me his address and his phone number. And I went home. And the next morning, I had to tell my parents I was leaving home with a 52-year-old black guy named Slappy. <laughs> and, uh, and I did. Uh, I did. Wow. And I went up to his house in, in White Plains. He lived in White Plains at the time. We started working on the act. And we did a couple of bits. And... Um, and we opened at the Apollo Theater that Friday night. So we did that for about two and a half years. And Steve Rossi, who was splitting up with Marty Allen, saw us one night. And he came to Slappy and said, look, I'm splitting up with Marty. I can get us ten grand a week at, at Caesar's Palace, uh, which was more than, than Slappy and I were making. And Slappy said to me, look, I got to take this opportunity. This guy's, you know, this guy's a, a, a player. And uh, I'll keep you on at the same amount of money as a writer. And I said, no, nah, I think I'm going to take a shot at uh, television. So that's my loose connection with Marty Allen. So Rossi indirectly launched you into a television career. Indirectly, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. You ever, you ever, Maybe, you ever think of the strange directly. odds of this, Don, that a kid who's working in a furniture store in Rhode Island should suddenly be on the road with Slappy White performing in an yeah. orange tuxedo? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's uh, Jackie it's, Wilson on the bill. Yeah, Jackie and Big Maybell. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What was seeing Jackie Wilson live like? It was Mr. Excitement. It, 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 you know, it was pretty astounding. You know, for me to to suddenly find myself in the Apollo Theater at that imagine. time, I don't think I had ever seen more than four or five black people in my life. Certainly not in a group. So you know, to to go to the Apollo Theater and and be on the stage at the Apollo Theater was certainly a, a life-changing, eye-opening experience. I can imagine. And, and you worked with these, like, legendary black entertainers. I did, yeah, I, I did. We, we, we went back there uh, the following year with uh, Lou Rawls and the OJs. Wow. Um, we worked with Young Holt Unlimited. We worked with... Uh, with Arthur Prysock, you know, we worked with a lot of different people. The, the, the Platters, there, there are all kinds of different places. We played a lot of colleges and and uh, clubs around the country. In Vegas, we worked in Vegas uh, for like months at a time. What was the act? I know you wore. You said you wore an orange tux, and you were the straight man. Yeah. Well, yes, I wore <laughs> the orange tux sometimes. You know, he would say, yeah, "That's a nice tuxedo you're wearing, Mister." He said, "We used to dress like that." That was the opening. <laughs> That was the opening joke, which worked very well at the Apollo, not so good in the Catskills. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, we did that, and he did, uh, you know, I was playing straight for him and writing jokes every day. I'd try to write topical jokes for wherever whatever town we were in. And, and he did an act, uh, the first black astronaut, which was, again, set up punchline. 
And then we had an act where, where, where I was reading Life magazine and he was reading Ebony, which were exactly the same size mm-hmm. at the time. And I would do some highfalutin story and he would do the, the black version of the same story. 19 so, years uh, old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty wild. That was my that was my education, and he became like a surrogate dad to me. You know, he was uh, he would tell me things that my dad wouldn't tell me. You know, you know, you can smoke dope, but stay the fuck away from the cocaine. You know, he told me that my father would have never told me. <laughs> Thanks. <so. laughs> it was very good advice too. Uh, and did you do it? I, I did. I avoided the cocaine. Yeah. 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 How did you meet Red? Because we were talking before we turned the mics on that Slappy and Red had history, too. Yeah, Slappy and Red were, were partners Red in, Fox. The, in, the, in the early days. Red Fox, yeah. And I met him on the road. You know, uh, we hung out together. We, we got high together. You know, it was a, it was a, a small fraternity of, of people that Slappy knew, you know, and Red was one of them. So years later, when Red got Sanford and Son, that was how I got to graduate from a joke writer to a sitcom writer, which in those days was a huge leap. Sure. You know, so, sure. So much more difficult. <laughs> well, let's take it back. Rossi comes and joins the act, and this is a, a, an invitation for you to, to hit the road and, and try your hand as a writer. And exactly. I love the story where you wound up in L.A. with a couple of bucks in your pocket, and you had given yourself a limited amount of time. I gave myself five days to get a job writing. Five days. I thought, thought, well, I thought that would do it because I had, Slappy gave me a phone number for uh, George Slaughter because George had made a a black version of Laugh-In called Soul and it didn't sell. It should have. It was really funny. But it didn't sell, but but Slappy now had a relationship with George, so he gave me this phone number. So I checked into what was then the Players Motel over here on Vine Street and uh, on a Sunday night, and Monday morning, I called a number, and it was the switchboard at NBC. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I talked to George Slaughter, and they put me through to his secretary. And she said, he's in a meeting. And I thought, okay, well, you know, he'll call me back. Um, he didn't call me back. So the other thing we had done was the Steve Allen show. And there were two guys named uh, Jeff Harris and Bernie Kukoff who produced that. And Jeff had said, if you wrote this material, if you're ever looking for a job, call me. So I called the Steve Allen show. Kukoff and Harris have been fired. They're not there anymore. I said, well, who's producing it now? They said, Elias Davis and David Pollack. I said, can I talk to them? They said, they're in a meeting. So I thought, eh, this is weird. <laughs> Everybody's in meetings, you know? So uh, I said, do you have a number on Harris and Kukoff? And they said, yes. And they gave me the number. I called it. And Bernie Kukoff answered the phone because their assistant, Tina, was in the bathroom. And they were looking for a third writer, someone young, to compliment Bill Box and Hugh Wedlock Jr. Right. on the Jimmy Durante show. So they invited me to come over and uh, bring my bring my material with me. Timing. Had she yeah. not had she not been in the uh, in the bathroom? Maybe Bernie doesn't answer the happened. phone, things wouldn't have turned that you way. Would, you would be you would be talking to Treat Williams, right? <laughs> <laughs> As we will. And and then they just hired you from that? 
No, uh, I, I, le- I had a, I had you know a phone book size of jokes because I'd been writing jokes every day for two years. So I left those, and they said we'll call you uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to London, which was a lie. They just told that to everyone so that <laughs> no one would call them back the right. next day. You know, it was total bullshit. <laughs> so I went, I went back to the hotel, and George Slaughter had returned my call. Uh, and so I, I made an appointment to go see him. Good old George. I met him, dropped off my material there, copies of it. Uh, never heard from him uh, that year. I finally heard from him a year later, and he hired me a year later. But uh, uh, Bernie Kukov calls back and says, uh, you know, can you write some stuff for us? I said, what do you need? He said, I need a, a monologue for Jimmy Durante, a monologue for Bob Hope, and three pages of crosstalk between Durante and the Lennon sisters. So I said, sure. And he said, when can you have it? I said, I'll have it tomorrow morning. So I went out and bought newspapers and wrote topical jokes and whatever. I wrote all night. And I brought it over there Wednesday morning now. And Wednesday afternoon, they offered me a job. So About that. So things really fallen into place. They did. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and what did that lead to? Well, first of that all, l- tell us about Jimmy Durante. Yeah, Gilbert's got a yeah. good Durante story, too. That's that's what it led to. It led to me working for Jimmy Durante on Jimmy Durante Presents the Lennon Sisters Hour, which was, you know, it was unbelievable. It was really an education because Jimmy was, uh, he was 82 years old at the time, and he was doing this show so he could bring in all his friends. He brought in, you know, we would, we would have Jack Benny for an entire week. I think he did two episodes. Bob Einstein was on it once. Oh, uh, was cool. on the show. Yeah. Um, I remember him being in the dressing room. But we had, you know, Frank Sinatra and Danny Thomas and... Uh, George Danny Burns Tom, and Benny. George and Burns, Everybody, yeah. yeah. Everybody in the world, you know. We got to go to Jack Benny's house. You might like this uh, story, uh, Gilbert. We, we, we were writing some stuff, and they said, Jack wants to see you. He wants you to come to the house. And I thought, oh, shit, Jack Benny's house. Wow. <laughs> so, and Huey knew him for years. Huey had been writing, him, writing for him for years. So we go to this house. It was over where the Playboy Mansion was, right in that neighborhood. And we pull up, and there's this big house. And, and a butler, an actual butler, a guy in a butler uniform answers the door, right? <laughs> and... And I walk in, and there's a, there's a Matisse on the wall. Wow. And we go up the stairs into Jack's wing. Jack had his, his own wing on the, the right side of the house, as I recall, down this long hallway. And, and Huey knocks on the door. And from inside the door, I hear, yeah, come on in. Right? It's, it's Jack <laughs> Benny's voice. Not right? bad, Don. <laughs> <laughs> and so Huey goes in, and I step into the room. And, okay. There's a four-poster bed there, big bedroom, and, and Jack Benny is sitting on the end of the bed in a in an elegant robe and leather slippers, and he's watching a TV that's here on the wall that I can't see, and he's laughing his ass off. He says, come on in. I, I watch this every day. It's hysterical. And I come in, and he's watching Highway Patrol with Broderick Crawford. <laughs> And every time Broderick Crawford speaks, Jack Benny collapses in laughter. I love it. This is the funniest guy. <laughs> Bizarre. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, the whole the whole year was like that. And everybody we've spoken to has nothing but good things to say about Jack Benny. Yeah, we've done two hundred and sixty of these, and not a yeah. not a disparaging word. Here's here's. Here's who Jack Benny was. Uh, the week of the show, we, we meet for breakfast in the commissary, at the old ABC commissary on Prospect and Talmadge. 
and he orders bacon and eggs. And the bacon and eggs come, and we're the only people in there. And uh, he takes a bite of the eggs, and he says, waiter, who made these eggs? <laughs> and, and the guy says, oh, well, you know, uh, the the chef, chef, it's a, sh- it's a short order cook. But he says, the, the, the chef, he says, bring them out here. And uh, we're all looking at each other saying, oh, shit, what's going on? And this guy comes out, you know, terrified. He comes out. It was almost like, yes, Mr. Benny, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Jack says, did you make these eggs? And the guy said, yeah. He says, these are the best eggs I've ever had in my life. And, and that's kind of what he wow. was like. He was a positive force. You know, everything was, every day was the best day of his life. And he was like, he was like a funny Mr. Rogers. Wow, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. 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 What, what about what about Durante? I don't think we've in, in all the shows we've done. I don't think we've had anyone tell us about Durante. Durante was a, was a show business animal. You know, yeah. he was he was everything about him was was steeped in show business. All his stories were references to people he knew in vaudeville and how the actor evolved and yeah. the, where Mrs. Calabash came from and. You know, um, he was uh, he was uh, an encyclopedia of of stuff that I had never heard of. Is it fun to no. just sit and let him hold court? Oh God, yeah, I yeah. Imagine. The most fun was I would sit in the. I was the kid, you know. So come on, kid, we're gonna go eat, and and I would go to lunch with him and Sammy Davis Jr. or Frank Sinatra. You know, we used to go to this restaurant called Sarno's over on Vermont, and they, they sang opera there, and uh, we ate there every day, and it was always with a different star. Now, tell Don Pete, your Durante story too before oh, you forget. Oh, but first, I just want to say, like I remember, like you know, growing up, people who old enough to remember the Durante on TV, he would always end the show with, "And good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are." So, who was Mrs. Calabash? Well, you know, there are different stories. I asked him this question directly once, and he said she was a woman who ran a boarding house that he stayed in when he was when he was struggling, and she let him stay there for nothing. Interesting. And Ooh. and the act hit, and the act took off, and uh, he would always thank her for her, you know, charity, which yeah. enabled him to get his career going. The story I got have is uh, that. Durante, toward the last years of his life, became a recluse. And he wouldn't go out. He locked himself in his... No one would see him around. So someone I know said they searched and found his house, knocked on the door, and they hear, Who is it? And he goes, "Ah, I'd like to speak to Jimmy Durante. And from inside the house, they hear, He ain't here. <laughs> gets me true. Gets me every time. I don't know. I had a friend who went to go to George Burns' house one night. And he knocked on the door, and this guy answered the door, and he didn't wreck it. He didn't have the wig on, or he didn't have his teeth in. It was George Burns, and he didn't know it was George. He oh, looked like someone completely different. <laughs> Mom's Mabley was like that. Mom's Mabley lived next door to Slappy White. In, in White Plains, when, when I first started this, she, she was his next-door neighbor. Uh, she had a sign on the roof of her house that said, No squares allowed. That's it's cool. Actual oh. sign. <laughs> but she was, you know, she, she you would not recognize her at all if she was out of the drag, you know, and she was in she was like a normal human being. Everybody came through that Durante show, and you, when, I heard your interview with, uh, with uh, uh, Barry Katz, 
And oh, yeah. I was listening to go, going to uh, to IMDb and looking up those Durante shows. I mean, everybody. Yeah. What an experience everybody. for you. And yes. what are you? What are you? Twenty twenty one. I sat with Colonel Sanders. Colonel once. Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> the real Colonel Sanders. You go, you're a kid at this point, right, Don? You're I was a kid. 22, yeah. 23, maybe? Yeah, I was 22 years old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you worked with Jackie Gleason. I did. You know, th- this is a... The, the Gleason story is very interesting. It was uh, Alan Katz and I were, were partners. Um, I'm actually having dinner with Alan Katz tonight. Alan Katz and I were partners in the early days of Laugh-In, and... Uh, we were writing together. We wrote the Sanford and Sons together in 73, I guess. And we get a call that uh, Frank Pepiot and John Aylesworth were going to do a Jackie Gleason special in Florida, and they wanted to take some writers with them. And would we go meet Frank Pepiot? And if you don't know who they are, they created Hee Haw and, and syndicated Hee Haw themselves, and they were rich. They had a lot of money. And 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 two they, Canadian guys who created Eeyore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they and they wanted to uh, they wanted to wear the T-shirt, as Frank said, of having written for Jackie. So we go out to the Malibu Colony and knock on the door. And Frank Pepiot, who was one of the most elegant people I've ever met, and 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 a consumer of gin. Let's put it that way. He, <laughs> But but he had a martini in his hand. He said, "Hi guys, uh, do you drink?" And we said, uh, "Yeah." He said, "You're hired." And <laughs> that was the that was the that was the interview for I the job. It. And we went to Florida for six weeks in the Everglades down there to work for Mr. Gleason, who was very unpleasant <laughs> to us. It was it was not good. It was not a pleasant experience. There were the four of us, and then Walter Stone, who was one of Gleason's writers, terrific guy. I could never get him to leave Florida and come out here. And uh, and one other guy, Jimmy something, who wrote the special material. Anyway, Gleason said hello to us the first day. He set up some chairs. We were sitting in the sun. He was in the shade. And uh, he told us, okay, here's the, here's the show. And he laid out the entire show. He had it done. There was virtually nothing to do except fill in the blanks. We were, and we're there for six weeks. And uh, he came over and introduced himself to me. And I thought, well, this is nice. And later, Jack Philbin, his producer, said, Gleason thought you were uh, Pepe and Aylesworth's agents. Otherwise, he would have never talked to you. <laughs> <laughs> which, which turned out to be true. He would, come into the, he would come into the room to hear jokes and stuff. And... and Alan would pitch a joke to him, and he would answer Walter. He would never make eye contact with anyone else. He would only address Walter Stone. So it was uh, unreal. It was a it was a a, a tough uh, six weeks. Would he peek know? in the blinds to see if you guys were working? He would come around in the afternoon and peek in and see if we were writing. You know, <laughs> and uh, disturbing. <laughs> you know, it culminated at the Miami Beach Auditorium. I've loved Frank Pepiot my whole life for this night. We had a car. They gave us a car finally that we could drive down to Miami because we were staying up in Fort Lauderdale or Inverary someplace. The night of the show, it's raining hammers and nails. It's raining like it can only rain in the tropics. It's just unbelievably hard rain. And we pull up to the Miami Beach Auditorium. Frank is driving. John is in the passenger seat. Alan and I are in the back seat. It was like a Ford, some kind of Ford, a fair, fair laner. And uh, they've been drinking a little bit. 
and we pull up, and there's a guy there in a yellow slicker. He's got a he's got a uh, clipboard. Frank says, "Hi, uh, we're the writers." Uh, the guy says, "What are your names?" And Frank gives him the names. He says, "You're not on the list." And Frank turns around. He looks at us. He says, "We're uh, we're not on the list." And the guy says, yeah, you pull out here, you go down two blocks, there's a parking structure, and Frank says, thank you very much. And he puts the car in reverse and backs up at full speed, bounces over the, the, the lawn there, and slams into the flagpole, opens the door to the car, opens the door to the car, stands outside. It's pouring rain. It's like he's standing in a shower. He's soaking wet instantly, and he looks back at Alan and I, and he says, see ya. And he walked off into the night, and I never saw him again. <laughs> That's an exit. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, you told Unbelievable. a story, too. You told a story that one time, you know, he was berating his writers and all the people who worked with him. And, oh, I now I, got, of course, got a mental block on his composer. Uh, oh, Sam, Sammy Spear. Sammy, Sammy Spear, Spear yeah, yeah. That was at the production meeting, yeah. the first production meeting. He's going around talking to, you know, June Taylor and Art Carney. And, the, and, and, and he says, Sammy, Sammy, work on the music. It's never been any good. And I'm thinking, he's kidding, right? <laughs> Not kidding at all. Like, oh, my God. Dead serious. <laughs> dead serious. That, and finally, Alan and I walked into the Miami Beach Auditorium. Somebody towed the car away. John Aylesworth left. And we walk in, and he had set up a couch and a TV set in the men's room of the Miami Beach Auditorium. And his agent, Sam Cohen, who was the biggest agent in the world at the time, is sitting there also. And the three of us sat there, and we're looking at this monitor. Off to our left, there are 100 urinals. That, you know, it's, it's, hilarious. It's, a, it's an auditorium, right? <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was like the smoking room, I think they called it at the, at the time. But it was the men's room. And he comes on, and we had worked on the monologue for five of the six weeks because he had so much of it laid out in his head. We wrote the Honeymooners and the Reggie Van Gleeson, whatever it was, uh -huh. in two or three days. And he said, just work on jokes for the monologue. So we had been writing jokes every single day for over a month. So I'm curious to see what he does. And he comes out and he says, uh, oh, we got such a big show tonight. There's no time for a monologue. Hit it, Sammy. Never did a joke. Not one. Nothing that we wrote the whole time. Wow. And then he did the show. And, and I, I, I have to say this. I sat there in the men's room and I laughed because he was so brilliant at yeah. what he did. He was so good at, at, uh, at being a comedian that he made me laugh and, uh, as much as I hated him. What was this thing Ted Wass was telling me that you told him on the golf course that he he would wet his finger, he would put the jokes on the Well, there was a yeah, he you know, there was a the, there's a story that that he would um Marvin Marks was one of his writers also. Sure, uh, I know that his, name. Yeah. And he, Marvin could do Gleason, so he would come in and he would uh, you know, pitch jokes to him and he would ask that the jokes be put in a pile, one joke per page, and he would slide them in front of him while all the writers were watching, read it, and then slide it off the other end of the table into a waste paper basket. <laughs> so all the jokes, you'd have to watch him read them and then dump them in the waste paper basket. And, and according to, to Walter Stone, after the writers left, he would go into the waste paper basket and take out the ones that he liked. Unbelievable. We also heard the swimming pool story. Oh, yes. I don't know yes, if, that's, if that's, that's true. I don't know that story. What is that one? I uh, We heard when it was time for the writers to get their checks, he would have them all stand around the swimming pool, and, uh, you know, he'd say they write his name. 
crumple up the check and fling it into the pool. And the writers had to jump into the pool and oh retrieve God. their check. <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible. I, we didn't do that. It was so hot down there, that would have been good. But was, was he not getting along with Carney? We heard some things that there was, there was tension. But that I but, don't know. No, I, huh? I never saw any sign of it. You know, Interesting. Uh, Art Carney was, you know, he showed up and did what he did so brilliantly. But I, I, I don't know. We weren't privy to, to any of, the, of that stuff. Yeah. You know, we were sort of and, banned from the stage. And wasn't Sammy Spear the one writing, you know, because at one point, Jackie Gleason was all of a sudden a great composer. Yeah, and a yeah, conductor. And a conductor. Yeah. And, Jackie and he, Gleason and strings. And, and yeah. he put out that album, Music for Lovers. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, I, I think somehow it, I, doubt. Yeah, I, I think it, you know, I, I look, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't surprise me if Sammy was, was actually behind that. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But it was 55 degrees in there. You know, he's the one who started that... Uh, that temperature that it has to be cold for comedy to work. That Letterman later. Yeah, continued. interesting. Was was Frank Fontaine? He must have been gone by then. There was crazy Guggenheim. He yeah, wasn't part he was, of that. He wasn't on the the show that I did. We yeah. just did this one special. I think it was called The Return of the Honeymoon. Right, 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 right. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. Right after this. That's what you say. <laughs> hum, hum, butter, bum, bum, bum. This is the podcast of Gilbert and Frank. Direct from beautiful downtown Burbank. Oh, it's New York. And now back to our show. Tell us about so Schlatter came back into your life, and this is how you wound up on Laughing. Yeah, which I love another George. fun period. Uh, you know, I, I've I've talked to him recently. He was we had him know, here. He's fun. He's unbelievable. He's great. He's a force of nature. He is he's a terrific guy. Yeah. The the following year, um, you know, I was a hot young writer, and uh, I got hired for Laughing. So we did three years of Laughing. That's where I met Alan Katz, and then we segued into into doing half hours together for a while. Any any stories at all about that wonderful cast about Gary Owens or I know you recognize Tomlin Lily Tomlin's genius right off the bat. Yeah, no, I don't have any any any, any stories there. Yeah, I, 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 that era was you know it was it was pretty fantastic for me. I was just thrilled to be there. I was I was very happy to be around these people. You know, it was uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was a really magical time. You know, uh, the, all, all the, the, the great show business stories were all happening somewhere else. That place ran like a clock. That, and, that, that was really good. And what about the guests? Do you remember anything of the guest stars? I remember meeting some of them. You know, I remember meeting John Wayne. I remember meeting Wilt Chamberlain. I remember meeting William Buckley. You know, um, they would come in and out of there, and it, it, Nixon. You know, it was a, uh, it was an exciting place to be. You know, it was a, uh, it was very very cool. But I don't have any great stories from from the laugh in years. I find that that story <clears throat> that that show on IMDb too, the RCA special with Frankie Avalon and Ed Asner, and do you know what I'm talking about? No, that you, I'm not and sure. Harry Belafonte. That did you, I, that you, did that I write you, it? Yeah, that you and Alan wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and John John Wayne was on it. Yeah, yeah. 
Does uh, that ring I any have, bells? Uh, no. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, there's so many things that I wrote that that I have no recollection of. It's a, uh, it's 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 a little frightening at this point in time. Yeah. But no, I, I don't remember. You know, we did a couple of we did a. a, a, a I'll a, send you a picture. We did a TV. Um, did a couple of TV roasts, the early roasts. I think I wrote one of the first ones. It was for Howard Cosell. It might have been the first televised roast. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the back. It was uh, I was with Red Fox and Muhammad Ali and Slappy, and the four of us sat around and talked for hours. But uh, I wish I had. <laughs> I wish I had taken the time to remember what we talked about. I know we talked a lot about pussy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Red knew his way around that yeah, subject. Well, you know, <laughs> that was that was, as I recall, that was the 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 number one topic. Now, Red hated white people. Well, I, I you know, he, his tolerance for white people was 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 not as high as it was for other. <laughs> For other races, you know, it was, uh, you know, listen, it it worked for me, uh, selfishly speaking, you know, the reason that we got a chance to do uh, uh, Sanford and Son and start writing half hours, I think we wrote seven of them in that first year. Some good ones, too. In the back nine. Yeah, there was some there was some fun stuff in there. Um, I think you wrote the there, one that introduced Julio, that introduced Gregory Sierra. That's right. Oh, the Puerto Ricans yeah. are coming. The Puerto Ricans yeah. are coming. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, a great we one. We did write that. Yeah. One. We wrote that yeah. one. And the Lena the Horn one. one. Lena Horn, yeah. 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 I remember I went to the, the dress. We used to do two shows. You know, you do one at 4.30 and then the audience, uh, another audience at 7.30. And the 4.30 show was so bad that I called my family and said, don't come to the show tonight. It's a disaster. And then at 7.30, it went through the roof. They did. I, I hadn't realized that you could modify your performance where it's not so good at one performance and it's really good in the when the lights come on. And Red was really only there for the for the the real show as he called it. And, our our and, friend John Amos was in that Lena Horn episode. Yeah, yeah. And he was on he was on the ranch recently. Yes, you know, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, and, and here with us twice. Lovely guy. Bill Persky, we've had on a couple of times. Yeah, Persky yeah. and Denoff. The Persky and yeah. Denoff, yeah. yeah. And he, he, he's not too uh, quiet about his hatred of uh, Demond. Oh, Demond. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. they didn't care yeah. for Demond. He did a he did know. a series know, with Demond called that, Baby I know I'm that back. there was a, there was there were people shooting at each other at one point in time, but <laughs> Demond, not, Demond apparently carried a piece. Yeah, he carried a, you know, he's a preacher now. So now I he think, is, yeah. You, know, you should have him on. That would be really fun. That would be really interesting. You know, we'll make a note of that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if he's still packing. Here you are, gentlemen, a nice cold pitcher of sangria. Ah, gracias, negro. I... What would you call him? That's a very common thing. I call him Negro. It's a very common thing. It's a friendly way of talking to each other in Spanish. What do we call ourselves? You look like no Negro to me. Uh, Mr. Sanford, you are going to enjoy this. It is called sangria. Sangria. Si. Uh, Say, what does sangria mean? It means blood. Because of the color. Oh, 
I thought it was something it brought back from the buffet. No, 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 no. It's a very popular drink. Do you like it? Yeah, it tastes good. Uh-huh. It tastes like Ripple that's gone flat. In fact, they should call it Flapple. Hey, what's that stuff down there in the bottom? Oh, that is fruit. Mmm, look like garbage. That's it. You can stay here and eat with him if you want to, but I'm leaving. No, no Lamont, I'm please, leaving. man, come back. Don't be like... No, excuse me, Mr. Sanford. Lamont, please, come back. Pardon me, please. Lamont! Hey, Negro, come here. Bring me another picture of that Shangri-La. Hey, look here, waiter. Hold the garbage. What, what was the thing, though? You, you were told, you guys were told, you, you tried to make the jump, and you were told you can't write half hours. That was, yeah, that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. You know, there were joke writers, and then there were, like, real writers, you know, sitcom writers. Right. And, uh, and that's how we made that transition. It was largely due to the fact that Red said, yeah, let these guys do it, because uh, I knew him because we had you know, hung out together as as contemporaries. You know, look, in comedy, you know, in within the world of show business, show business is like a big tent, you know? It's like a circus, and mm-hmm. you're either in the tent or you're out of the tent. And when you're in the tent, I don't think there's a whole lot of um, color, a whole lot of prejudice. It's just sort of like we're all in this together. At least that's what I like to believe. Before we go deeper into Red and Sanford and Son, I'm going to try to jog your memory on these, Don. You you wrote the Rowan and Martin special in 73 with Ruby Keeler, for Christ's sake. Ruby Keeler. (laughs) Dolly Parton, Newhart, and Belafonte. (laughs) Ruby Keeler was? (laughs) Yeah. Incredible cocksucker. <laughs> RCA opening night was the one I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, with, okay. Uh, well, you'll have to talk about that because I got nothing. Jack Carter, oh. Borgnine, Glenn Ford, Howard Cosell, John Wayne, and Tony Orlando and Dawn. Wow. I'd like to see that. <laughs> so would I. Can, I, can I, you I, tell I, us about <laughs> Jack Carter? Jack Carter, you know, the... the, the the only stories I remember about Jack Carter, well, we did this, I started to tell you, we did this big roast one night that was for celebrate Frank Sinatra's, I don't know, 100th year in show business or whatever it was. <laughs> it was again with Bernie Kukoff and, <laughs> and, uh, and Jeff Harris. And right before we started shooting, Frank's lawyer, uh, Mickey Rudin, said, by the way, Frank will only appear in this show for four shots. Four, you can only shoot him. You can only photograph him four times, and they have to be less than ten seconds each. Go ahead. And, and, and I don't know where this came from. It might have been a, a, a ploy for more money. They might have been negotiating, but that was the rule. You couldn't shoot Frank more than four times. Total of forty seconds. And and the roast is about him. He's sitting next to the dais, so it was. A, <laughs> It was a bit of a triumph, and uh, but Jack Carter was on that, and the the one I remember was the guy who played the rifleman. Oh, Chuck um, Connors. Chuck Connors. He was yeah. sitting down to the left, and he got hammered during this thing, and he started to yell at the audience. You know, you fuckers! Why don't you go back to Beverly Hills, you fucking cunts? You know. And it was like, <laughs> and he had always been my hero, you know. He's like Chuck Connors, the rifleman. 
And, you know, he had a bad night that night. <laughs> what about this one? One more time. I don't time. remember Jack Carter. You don't remember Jack Carter. Other than his bit. He was an angry guy, we're, we're told. Yeah. One More Time was another show you wrote with Pearl Bailey, George Goble, Carol Channing, Pat Boone, Tiny Tim, and the Jackson Five. That I remember. Directed by the great Marty Pesetta. I remember one joke that we wrote for 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 that show, and the joke it was it, the joke was it was an introduction. It was like uh, it was uh, uh, Cher, Judy, Frank, all the greats you can recognize by one name, ladies and gentlemen, George Gobel. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's the only thing I remember from that show. I think the Pointer Sisters were on that show wow. too. Wow. Well, and now on the subject of red, and I'm trying to remember where I read it. Maybe it was in Big Man because you tell some of your your own showbiz stories in the book too. Was it he had an attack dog named Agnes? Red. Uh, I, all I remember is this giant Saint Bernard that he had when, yeah. he, when he lived in the house in Toluca Lake. And I I went over there one day and started to walk through the the gate. And Red comes running out. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. And they had to put the dog away. He said because the dog uh, the dog doesn't like white people. So. <laughs> I avoided the dog. I loved his line in your book, too. He said uh, he loved Asian women, and he said, you ever see me with a white woman? I'm holding her for the police. Yes. yes. That's, that's what he said. <laughs> what a piece of work. Another name that's come up on the show a few times with people with stories, Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was friends with Bill Richmond. Bill Richmond oh, yeah. is the guy who wrote with Jerry sure, Lewis. Sure, Nutty Professor. and The Nutty Professor. Yeah. Bill and I were very, very close. I met him on Laughing. Bill was in his 50s when, when on Laughing. He was, I'd rather talk about him than Jerry Lewis because I don't have a whole lot about <laughs> yeah, Jerry Lewis, but Bill was an amazing character. You know, he had been a pilot in World War II. He got out and became a big band drummer. He was Frank Sinatra's drummer. He was the drummer in the Les Brown Band, and that's where he met Jerry Lewis. And then he wrote The Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis and and all those Jerry Lewis movies. And he looked like Cary Grant, and he was a scratch golfer. He was one of the most incredible guys that I ever met. He was a cool, cool dude. We lost him a couple of years ago. Yeah, we were going to try to have him on here. He wrote The Errand yeah. Boy, too, and uh, Ladies' yeah. Man. Yeah, great, great guy. Did you he put was, him on staff at Larroquette? I put him on staff on everything. I uh-huh. loved being around him. You know, he was just, uh, he was everything that I wanted to be and will never be. As long but, as, you know, he was he was devoted to Jerry. Even when Jerry fell out of favor, you know, Jerry became sort of uh, uh, passe and Bill would always defend him saying, you know, that, that Jerry was was an innovator and was was really a good guy. Um, I I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't have much interaction with Jerry. As long as we're talking about classic comics, you did work on action. Yes, the, uh, the, action. The terrific uh, Jay Moore, uh, Ileana Douglas yes. series that yes. you and Chris Thompson did. And you you, you must have worked. Thompson, with- Chris Thompson said we did that show because of his need and his love for narcotics and hookers and trips. That's why... <laughs> That's why the show, and the show was appropriately about greed. Um, uh, uh, that was a wonderful experience. I loved working on that. We show. had Eliana here, and we talked about yes. it. I mean, it's it, yes. that was a show. I mean, if you did that show today, it would probably be better suited for for a Netflix or a or or, well, or it was, Amazon. It was originally for 
it was originally for HBO. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, and it should have been on HBO. It should have you been. Know, it really, it really didn't work on on Fox. It was, uh, it was the, the audience actively hated the show, not just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it was there were heaping hunks of hatred uh, hurled at it, and, and within the business, people still talk about it and still still refer to it as one of the touchstones. Beverly Hills was, Gun Club. It was a, yeah, a great deal of fun to <laughs> What do. about Hackett? Anything? He was terrific. I mean, Buddy was great. He was, uh, you know, he was he was tremendous fun to be around. You know, as long as you wanted to talk about Buddy Hackett, you, you'd have a wonderful time. <laughs> Another guy who liked to pack heat, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, was, he, was, he was great. He had a lot of Buddy Hackett stories, none of which I remember. But. <laughs> and what about Bob Hope? You know, I don't know Bob Hope. Uh, I, I knew him. Uh, I worked with him a couple of times. You know, um, I met him in Chicago once when we were working at Mr. Kelly's. He was there. Um, uh, he came into the club, but he, he was like, you know, he was like a building. You know, I mean, it was like Bob Hope was uh, was an astoundingly giant uh, character in the in the business. But I was. I was in the men's room at Lakeside Country Club one day, <laughs> and and I was in one of the stalls, and I hear Bob Hope coming in. He's talking to somebody outside of the bathroom, and and he walks into the room, and he's and I can I know from the sounds that he's walking over to a urinal. Now there's a there's a there's a certain set of rules in this situation. You either cough. Or you make noise so the person, the other person in the room knows there's someone else in the bathroom. Or you don't make any noise. I didn't make any noise. And I heard this. Come on, come on along and listen to a lullaby of Broadway. <laughs> And then he washed his hands and he walked out. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, you're going to top that one, Gil. <laughs> Tell us it was about one of the work- best One of the best moments of my life. <laughs> Tell us about working for Cher, Don, another larger-than-life yeah, personality. You know, Cher, that was, you know, I have fond memories of working for Cher because that's that's where I met my wife. Yes. You know, she, she introduced us. It was... Uh, it was fortuitous for me. Um, you know, that was that was the share special with George Slaughter. George hired me to to write the share special, and we went to uh, we went to New York together. We went to see Bette Midler, and she was going to be on it. And we went to flew down to Washington D.C. Share and I to, to see Elton John. We flew back on the Starship, that famous uh-huh. rock and roll airplane. Uh-huh. We came back uh, on that with Elton, and uh, you know, it was again. You're shot out of a cannon, you know. I was into this other world. Cher was as exotic and 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 as desirable as a human being could be at that point in time, and it was a thrill to do that show again. There were all these incredible people that showed up. You know, we had sure. David Bowie there for yeah. a week. Tina Turner, David, Tina Turner, yeah, yeah. Ray Charles. Da- uh, you name them, they were there. David Captain Bowie Kangaroo. came in. Da- Captain <laughs> Kangaroo. David Bowie came in and with his, his assistant at the time was this redhead woman. I forget her name. But we walked into the uh, one of the rehearsal halls over at CBS over here on 
Fairfax, and she was dressed in this black dress, a see-through dress that had, she had nothing on underneath it. And you were supposed to just conduct business like, you know, <laughs> there's nothing unusual about this. You know? And he never referred, nobody ever referred to the fact that this is there's a naked woman here talking to us. Um, but Bowie was great. He was, uh, he was, he's the one I remember the most, I think, because I was so into yeah, his of music course. and stuff. That special, that, 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 uh, that pilot or that special is good, the one with, with Bette Midler and Elton. And Elton's doing comedy skits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. When we went to see him, we were at the Sherry Netherlands the first time we saw him, and he was running around the uh, the suite up there doing his grandmother because there was a bit in the right in the special where he plays an old person. Yeah, so the wheelchair. He was, he was doing his grandmother. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. he was great fun. So that show was fabulous. Was uh, anything about Captain out. Kangaroo? I don't remember a whole lot about Captain <laughs> Kangaroo. I don't, I don't want to malign Captain <laughs> Kangaroo. <laughs> Let's talk about a little bit about the big man, the book, which yeah, I want to, okay. which which you wrote in what two thousand and nine. I think that's yeah, right. And yes. we lo- that, this is what, when I actually met you when you and Clarence were on the Joy Behar show, pl- right. plugging yeah, this yeah, book. Yeah, 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 ten, yeah. Ten years ago, and it's a wonderful wow. read. Not only because it's a it's a great rock and roll book, but it's a, it's yeah. also filled with fantastic anecdotes and some of your anecdotes, as well as uh, stories about you and and Clarence. The Groucho phone booth story. Can you can you comment on it? I I can comment on it. You know, listen, Clarence told a lot of stories. You know, he was a storyteller, <laughs> uh-huh. and I, I can't verify whether you know did he play nine ball with Fidel Castro? I don't know. <laughs> I he claims so. that he did. <laughs> I hope know? so. He, he claims that he did. He claims he was there with Hunter Thompson, and they were they were playing nine ball with Fidel Castro. I don't know if it's true. I'd like to believe it's true. I haven't really tried to disprove it. So the Groucho Marx story is, you know, Groucho was walking down the street and he picked up a, a phone in a phone booth that was ringing and it was Clarence. <laughs> and Clarence had been given a phone number by a girl he tried to pick up in a bar. Lovey. And she she said, yeah, she said, this is my phone number. And it really wasn't. It was the number of this phone booth. And it was answered serendipitously by uh, Groucho Marx. That is wild. So, yeah. How, how much yes. of that Sinatra story about Sinatra meeting with him and wanting to cover Born to Run? As far as I <laughs> know, it's gospel, it's Frank. As, I, I certainly hope it's true. Oh, my you know, God. I, I, wrote it, I wrote it the way that he told it to me, and uh, I, I hope that it's true, oh. you know, that Frank wanted to wanted to do Born to Run <laughs> at one point in time. Well, we, you know, we talk but about he wanted his... to do it as a ballad, you know? Yeah. Oh, Mrs. We Robinson. talk about his version of Mrs. Robinson with Jilly, where he references Jilly. <laughs> Jilly, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? I met Jilly. I met Jilly before I met Frank. That's you know. I wanted to. I wanted to be in that world when I was in high school. Even before I met Slappy, I would drive to New York and hang out in Jilly's. And I got to know the guy, the cab driver who drove him. This guy named Artie. Wow. And he introduced me to Jilly, and I started to hang out in Jilly's. That's the first time I met Frank. Was in Jilly's. Now, Jilly and his wife. His wife was Honey. Her name was Honey. Just to jump back a story, yeah. uh, how did he find out he was talking to Groucho Marx? How, Groucho introduced himself. Oh. He, he introduced himself on the phone, but Clarence didn't know who Groucho Marx was. So, you know. Do tell the, the, the De Niro, uh, the painting story, too, because that's a great story in the book. The, the De Niro story is, is, are you talking to me? That's you know that that 
you know, Bruce has addressed this this story too, and it might might be urban uh, uh, an urban uh, what do you call it myth? Uh, yeah, an urban yeah. myth. Yeah. But according to Clarence, De Niro said the "Are you talking to me?" thing that he did in uh, Taxi Driver, he got from Bruce. That Bruce was, he went to a Bruce concert early on and Bruce was standing on stage and people were yelling, Bruce, Bruce. And Bruce stood there and said, are you talking to me? I'm the only one here. Are you talking to me? And De Niro says that that's where he got that bit from really Taxi cool. Driver. That's yeah. cool. At some point in the book, Clarence says that, that Springsteen was funny, that he could have been a comedy writer. Is he funny? He, Do you he experience is funny. him that way? Yeah, he is funny. He is funny. You know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a, good, a, a story. Um, when Clarence died, um, I was down in Florida for for the funeral. You know, we were all in the hospital for that last week. It was really, really a difficult week, and Bruce was amazing that week, bringing people together. And anyway, after Clarence died, we're, we were up in his apartment, uh, in Clarence's apartment, we're getting ready to. To go to uh, to the church, I think, and and at at one point in time, there's just Bruce and I there, and I said, you know, Clarence used to tell dirty jokes all the time. Yeah. So <laughs> I I said, did Clarence tell you the the Willie Nelson joke? And Bruce said, no. I said, oh, okay. I said, it, it, here it is. It says, what's the last thing you want to hear when you're blowing Willie Nelson? And Bruce said, oh, gee, uh, I don't know. And I said. I'm not Willie Nelson. <laughs> so he doesn't laugh, right? He, he, he walks over into the kitchen. He leans up against the counter. He looks down. He says, he looks up. And finally, he says, you know, that's really funny. <laughs> said, yeah, my heart stopped. You know, I thought, oh, my God, I've offended Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. So many good stories in the book. One of them, my favorites, is your Robert Altman story, which you have to tell Gilbert quick. That that's a true story. Yeah, I'm in New one. York. I'm at an apartment in, in a, a full floor apartment on on Park Avenue with these with very socially upwardly mobile people who I have nothing in common with. And the host came over to me. He said, there's somebody else in show business here. So I said, oh, great, good, anything. And, <laughs> and he says, uh, come with me. And he says, uh, Bob. And he says, this is Don Rio. He says, this is Bob Altman. That's Robert Altman, right? Yeah. And Robert Altman turns to me and shakes hands. He says, uh, you're in show business? So I said, yeah. He said, do you have any dope? And I said, I said no. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> Never said another word to me. <laughs> and I went back to talking to Muffy or Biffy or whoever I was with. And we worked together twice. We did. Yes. Okay. Uh, we, 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 okay. Had Jim, we had Jim Burroughs here last week, and Gilbert was, uh, was riding him for never, uh, never actually never hiring, hiring him. him? So happen, yeah. Happy to see you did. We probably met through, through, uh, through Jimmy Vallely early on. You, you know, yes. Jimmy yeah. is oh, yeah. funny guy. Jimmy, I have a great Jimmy Vallely story. I've got to tell you this story. Yeah. Jimmy Vallely is writing. Jimmy Vallely, for those of you listening, is a very, very funny comedy very writer. Very funny. He was working on My Wife and Kids. We're in Vegas. Me, Damon, Dean Laurie, another writer, and Jimmy are in Le Cirque, this fabulous restaurant. We're drunk. We've just wrapped the Michael Jordan episode. 
And it's after dinner, and uh, I said to Damon, why don't we get a Louis the Thirteenth? It's a, this fancy brandy. It's like you know five hundred dollars an ounce. And Damon says, yeah. So the maitre d' comes over. We order one, and Damon says, hey, do you have anything better than Louis the <laughs> Thirteenth? And the guy says, in 1853. A galleon went down off the coast of Jamaica, and it lay at the bottom of the sea for a hundred years until it was uh, it was uh, um, it was divers went down and, and resurrected it. And on board were four barrels of brandy. Two of them belonged to Prince Rupert of Liechtenstein. <laughs> the Queen of England owns one, and we have the other. It's thirty five hundred dollars an ounce. And Damon says we'll have one. And this starts the ceremony. They come out with this cask and Baccarat crystal glasses, and the guy draws an ounce of this stuff, and he says, you got to let it sit. Just sniff it, right? So I take it, and I sniff it. I hand it to Damon. He sniffs it. I hand it to Dean. He sniffs it. Dean hands it to Jimmy. Jimmy takes the whole thing in his mouth and goes, <laughs> spits it out on the floor. He says, this is terrible, right? <laughs> well... <laughs> It was the funniest thing I had ever seen a human being do in my life. <laughs> Everybody else was aghast, right? They wow. threw us out of the place. Wow. But it was, uh, it was a bold, bold, funny funny thing to do. Now, you were on yeah. Till Death. You were on the Brad Yeah, Gallery I was show. on about two episodes of yeah. Till Death. Okay. And, and one of them, my favorite episode, was one that... We're uh, in the locker room together, me and Brad Garrett, and he notices that I have an extremely big dick. Uh huh. That's the whole running thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that became my favorite uh, TV episode. <laughs> well, we've bookended this conversation. Yes, yes. We open it with a big dick. And <laughs> I got I got a couple of quick questions for you, Don, from, yes, list, sure. from listeners. Um, uh, Listeners. Jason Pagano, uh, I'm a fellow Rhode Islander, Dan. Uh, Dan, I'm a Don. Big fan. Uh, given the timing of your interview, do you have an anecdote of, or two about working with the late, great Valerie Harper? You wrote a couple episodes of Rhoda. I produced Rhoda. Uh, Alan and, and I produced Rhoda, Rhoda, Rhoda right. for, for, for one season, I guess. It was after we left MASH. Uh, no, she was a delightful person. She was, uh, she was lovely. I, I really enjoyed being with her. Um, you know, she had she, she she always struggled with her weight. I remember when we, when we showed up for the first day, she had lost a tremendous amount of weight in the in the off season, and and the following Monday, like we we met on a Friday, and the following Monday, she said, "I have to tell you this story." She said, "When I was driving home last night, I stopped at a bakery and I bought a birthday cake, and I had it, I had them write Happy Birthday, uh, Marsha." On it, and I took the cake out, and I went to the drugstore next door, and I bought a rat tail comb, and then I went into the car, and I used the back of the comb to cut the cake, and I ate the entire cake. So I said, "Wow, that's crazy." <laughs> she said, "Yeah, <laughs> welcome to the show." <laughs> so, Here's another. You know, yeah, she was. I, I got to work with her a handful of times. She was very sweet. She was very sweet, and so was uh, Julie Kavner. She yeah. was great. Everybody on that show was great. Charlotte Brown was the showrunner of that show. Terrific, terrific writer. Lynn Mancini says, Don's choice on this question. Can he tell us anything about spending time with either the hilarious Chris Rock or the dearly departed Dr. John? Well, uh, Dr. John, you know, um, wrote the 
did the theme for Blossom. Yeah. Um, I don't have any great stories about Dr. John. Chris Rock, you know, I got to hang around with, I basically got paid to hang around with Chris Rock while we were doing Everybody Hates Chris. And, uh, uh, you know, it was interesting. The way Chris thinks, Chris thinks in a different way. It was, remember the time when Michael Vick got got in trouble for the the thing with killing the the dogs and all this stuff? So I'm having lunch with Chris that day, and I said, you know, this guy, there's no way to forgive a person for this. He said, well, that's because you're white. I said, what are you talking about? He said, black people have a different relationship with dogs. I said, how? He said, well, I'll tell you how. During the Underground Railroad, the dog said, hey, they're under the stairs. (laughs) (laughs) I guess he's got a point. A little it's bit got of a different I, point of view. A very different. funny. Yeah. Just quickly, uh, Don, we got to talk a little bit about the Larroquette show before we get out of here. Yes. I, I, I loved uh, hearing your story about well, who was the executive. Was it Sagansky at CBS that absolutely hated the show? Hated it. Yeah. Hated it. We delivered it on Friday. We thought, boy, this is going to be great. Let's hire a casting director. And he called Monday. He said, I hate this. Just get it out of the building. I'm not going to give you notes. I hate this. Right? And uh, and that was it. It was it was dead at CBS. And then I think it was three years later, Larroquette stumbled on it, got mm-hmm. a hold of it, and it mm-hmm. became the John Larroquette show. A very ran for, ran edgy for show. Years. Very it edgy. was edgy, you know. It was it was dark. We wanted to do a very dark comedy, you know. It was a the, he had a sign. This is a dark ride that he got at a carnival when he was a kid, and the line in the script was, "There should be one of these hanging at the end of the birth canal." Yeah, I watched the pilot last night. I mean, and I watched a couple of them last night. You know, there's like a Richard Ramirez Night Stalker reference yes. in the pilot. I mean, yes, it's a, dark. A, 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 yeah, it's an edgy show I'm for prime I'm time. I'm surprised Gilbert wasn't on that show. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who was on that show was Slappy. Bob Bobcat was on that Bobcat, show. Bobcat. Yeah. Bobcat was on that show, and he played a character who, when he was drunk, didn't talk like Bobcat. He only he only talked that way and acted that way when he was sober, but when he drank, he he kind of talked with a slight English accent. You know, did did listening to Tom Waits somehow inform your writing and creation yes. of that show? Yeah. Almost everything that I've ever created has been based on music. It's been based on something I'm listening to, and at the time, I was listening to Nighthawks at the Diner. You know, Tom Waits early stuff, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to write about people who worked from midnight to 8 a.m., you know. The original title was They Only Come Out at Night. Yeah, it's it's very edgy, and it's very smart. I mean, I'm listening, I'm watching it, and there's there's Edward Hopper references, and Beckett references, and Miles Davis, and I turned to my wife, and I said, this is another show that might have been better suited on cable, or on HBO, or in this day and age on Netflix, as opposed to having to compromise by being on network. We were where we were, you know. There was a, there's a whole Thomas Pinchon uh, run in, yeah. that, in that in that show, and the yeah. Stephen Edie Hitler episode, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> written I think by your pal JJ Wall. Oh, yeah, JJ, yeah, yeah. Yes. I, just talked, I talked to JJ a week ago. Oh, yeah, yes, that was a wonderful uh, experience. I'm still friendly with uh, John. We're he, talking about doing something else. What a funny guy. Yeah, what a fu- he is. He's a great guy. Can we ask, ask you before we jump about a couple of people? Um, Brian Keith, the late Brian Keith that you you did a series with. Yes, yes. Called Heartland. Uh, yeah, Brian was uh, he was a cowboy. You know, he was uh, he was he was a no nonsense kind of uh, Western character. You know, he would sit on the can with the door open and give you notes for, <laughs> for the script. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was. Uh, Whew. 
<laughs> now, he, 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 he must else. have had stories. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we could stay here for a long, long time if I were to repeat other people's stories. You know, it, it goes on for for days and days. But to- Brian was a, he was a, he was a real interesting throwback character. Yeah. He came he was to like a, a, he was like from a Peckinpah movie, you know? He's like that kind of guy. He came to a sad end, unfortunately. Brian yes. Keith. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What about somebody we've we've desperately wanted to have on this show, Malcolm McDowell? You did Pearl well, with. Well, yeah. I, I, I am still friendly with Malcolm. We adore I, him. I love Malcolm. He's, uh, he's... Ask him to tell you his Danny Kay Olivier story. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Which he he's told got on the some Bay great stories. You know, I, I don't want to repeat Malcolm's stories. No, no. But but if you can get him here, he's got some wonderful stories. We'd like to. We'd like to get he's him. He's got some great Caligula stories. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's he starred in that movie, and uh, uh, it's he's got some great stories. This is throwing a bone to Gilbert, but Sid Melton was on Blossom. Yes. And he's come up on this show a hundred times. Yeah. Jan, Danny Thomas's old sidekick. Yes. Anything. Yes. Uh, not really. I mean, Sid Melton, you know, you would get a call from uh, Paul Witt or Tony Thomas saying, you know, Sid needs his insurance. you got to put him on the show. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's kind of that's how it happened. He was a delightful guy. You know, he was a wonderful guy, but he was one of those, one of those people that, you know, are inside the tent, but they're near the exit. What about Bill Dana, who was on, La- oh. who was on the Lenny Schultz show? Yeah, you, Bill Dana. I knew mostly from Hawaii for for a while. Uh, I I had a house in Hawaii in in a town that Bill had a house in, and I met him on the beach in Hawaii. And most of most of uh, the time that I spent with him was was there. We, you know, we, we almost had him. We had him booked. Yeah. Oh no, kidding. we had Jack Carter booked too. And oh, they boy. both they both took a turn for the worse. Yeah. I got to check my insurance. Yeah, <laughs> you you ought to. How did uh, Ted's character? You know, and you know Ted was here, right? He's obviously yeah. he he he, yeah. he brought us to Ted you. Ted was the yes. lovely Ted was. We 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 had a great yes. time with him. How did he come to be based? Uh, his character in Blossom come to be based on Dion. Dion Demucci is a friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. He was on the Share Show, so back in the seventies. Okay. And as I was creating Blossom, I I, uh, I went to Florida for Dion's. 50th birthday party so that's 30 years ago um and uh and i went to his house and he lived in a you know in a neighborhood he had a, two cars and three kids and you know and i thought this guy's in the rock and roll hall of fame and he's got like a normal life you know dads on television are not in the rock and roll hall of fame they're not hip they're all you know older and they're like my dad and uh that's why i changed the character of the father to a musician. He was a studio musician. He was a piano player. And it was largely due to, to, the, to, the, to the fact that Dion was, uh, was a dad, too. So why not have a dad like that? Why not have a dad yeah. who knew music and musical references and, you know, different approach sessions? Yeah. Did, it was the, just a little, little tribute. The, to. the night you met Dion, was that the Phil Spector night? That you went to the room? It was the Phil Spector week, the f- yes, yeah. because Dion was recording the, an album with Phil Spector, and uh, he invited me over to the Gold Star Studios, which were on Santa Monica and Vine Street there. And uh, and <sighs> I walked in, it was Studio 3, I think, and we walked in, uh, my wife and I, and, and I hear, who the fuck are you? And I turned to the right, and... 
up on the up on behind the board is Phil Spector, who is in a white jumpsuit with a giant white afro wig and red sunglasses, and he's pointing a forty-four magnum at my head, right? And I could still see it. It was like, oh fuck, right? It was really odd because behind him was Bruce Springsteen and Steve Van Zant and Robert Hilbrand from the from the LA, LA Times. They were all yeah. sitting there. Yeah. And Zach Glickman, who was Dion's manager at the time, was in front of me, and Zach jumped up. He said, no, no, it's okay, Phil. He's a friend of Dion's. He says, okay, don't shoot. <laughs> so uh, he didn't shoot. He said, all right, come in, sit down, shut the fuck up. I'm going to show Bruce Springsteen how to make a fucking record tonight. And they cut this, uh, they cut this record called Baby Let's Stick Together. So you've had a gun pulled on you by Phil Spector. By Phil Spector, And yeah. you've seen Uncle Milty's unit. I, I may be the only one who can claim both those. <laughs> that's a, that's At a, least the only living person. A life in show business right there. Uh, I want to plug the book, too, Don, because it's, sure. it's, a, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, God, I, I mean, some of the stories, the Sinatra story, the, 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 we'll let people buy the book, but there's that story about buying the painting with, yes. the, with the De Niro and the, the story of the painting, uh, which people will have to buy the book. Yes, let uh, them buy the book. Let them let them buy the damn book. Let's what, keep something what, secret. And, and the Larroquette show. Why, why is it not available? I mean, I had to find them on YouTube, and yeah, I'm I, sorry me they're too. bootlegging your show. I have no idea why. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. It should be seen. Yeah, it was a fun show. It was way ahead of its time. It was uh, it was delightful. We had a lot of interest. Lenny Clark was a regular on that show. Gilbert, you know Lenny Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 What, and, a, and tell us about the ranch. The ranch. Uh, well, my work on the ranch is finished. You okay. know, there are there are twenty episodes to go. There are there are ten which will be released on this coming Friday this week, and then ten more in January, and we will have completed eighty episodes. Terrific, terrific experience. Got to work with Sam Elliott. I mean, my God. Yeah, tell he's us the, about Sam Elliott. The, he's the coolest man in the world. He's just, the, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I just want to be Sam Elliott. He's great. He's great. I loved him. I, I loved everybody on that show. Yeah, Ashton was terrific. Danny Masterson was great. Deborah Winger has. You want to talk about great stories? If you can get Deborah Winger to do your show, we're right, we're taking notes here as you're talking. Well, she is she is a raconteur. Yeah. She's fabulous. Will you will you write another memoir? I mean, this is a this is a partial memoir because it's also it's 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 told from your point of view, but also Clarence's point of view. Yeah, I know. I'm going to have to hurry because you know I've forgotten three shows I did today while you were talking to me, so I'd have to. I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I really want to, you know, because the the third act of memoirs is always the tricky part, and uh, um, I might let somebody else do it. Okay, okay. So this has been great, Don. We really appreciate well, it. Well, thank you. It's, I've enjoyed. Uh, I've enjoyed telling you these stories. Get the good wine. Well, order the good wine. Order the yes, good indeed. wine. Order the good wine. You never know what's coming. Yeah. So I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we've been talking about the man who produced a show that had me on in a case of art imitating life. A man with a gigantic <laughs> cock. That's <laughs> a great Don Rio. And we want to thank Ted Wass, too. And if you talk to him before we do, give him our love. I will. What a hell of a guy. 
Yeah, this is my best friend. Yeah. He's a good guy. And how many people can say they start in a Pink Panther movie? Exactly. There's yeah. only two, and one of them's dead. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Don. This was a lot of fun. Godfried's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Godfried and Frank Santa Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. 
Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 